Welcome to the Dreams and Money podcast, the ultimate guide to creating and living your best life. Join me as I talk to inspiring, trailblazing millennials who are breaking barriers and being bosses in their careers and personal lives. Yes, so welcome everyone to a new episode of the Dreams and Money podcast. And today I have a special guest, as I always do. This time it is Topsy Tower, who is a property expert, content creator, a dancer as well. <laughs> I see you on Instagram doing a one-two-step. We love to see it. Hi, Topsy. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. I like that intro. Um, I wasn't expecting you to say dancer because I would never refer to myself as a dancer. I like a little one-two-step, but... Um, I appreciate it. I appreciate it. No, the, I mean, you've got the serious content, which is that property related, as well as being a presenter, you give us interviews, but we also see the one, two dance videos, which are lighthearted and let us see your personality. So yeah, no, we love to see it. Definitely. I've got one more coming out hopefully soon as well. So <laughs> we'll be looking forward to that. So um, do you remember how we met in the first conversation we had? I remember meeting AfroNation. Um, the specifics of the conversation, I'm not entirely sure, probably because I was drinking at the time. So, but um, I remember it was in Portugal, AfroNation. So the only reason I remember that conversation specifically, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, you had conversations with loads of people. Um, I had conversations with loads of people, but for some reason, the conversation we had stuck out to me because you said to me, I'm a presenter and I, I'm not sure if you had started at the time or you were planning to create the top chat show. And it stuck out to me because I was in the process of planning and recording for this podcast which is a little bit similar in the sense that I'm interviewing people I'm talking to people and that's what you were doing with Top Chat as well and I was like oh my god like it just kind of inspired me to just kind of keep it pushing because as much as it's, it's it's very similar so along the same lines of just telling people stories hearing what they're about and just kind of giving them a platform really to shine so it just kind of stuck out to me for for that reason for sure for sure for sure now it's coming back to me now but I do remember talking about it at the time because I think I was planning some more episodes and I, I just started it so yeah I'm happy I'm happy it planted a seed in you to go to go off and do it and then look where we are now over a year later it's still going strong I know I know definitely and it's, it's so crazy like it's literally just the little things that I guess sometimes you can say the universe is kind of pushing you or just telling you you're you're in the right direction I mean, the seed was already there. I was already planning. I was already recording, but it just sparks that that motivation to keep pushing because I kind of realized in talking to you about it, I realized how passionate I was about it. Mm-hmm. Um, really interesting you mentioned that because I feel sometimes when you're so like zoned in and focused on just doing your thing and then you forget why you're doing it and then a conversation with somebody else can remind you yo this is why I love it this is why I'm passionate and sometimes it can really help you push ahead and give you the motivation and remind you to go ahead with it so I, I couldn't agree more I think those types of conversations with people especially when they're unplanned as well they're so helpful in pushing you further towards your goal Absolutely, absolutely. And again, like you're saying, it was so random and I hadn't told anybody I was doing it, minus the people that I had actually recorded with, which was, I think, about three episodes at that time. I hadn't told anybody I was doing it. I hadn't put anything out there. So that conversation, like I said, it just kind of pushed me to be like, you know, you're doing the right direction. And clearly there's a conviction within me to just really launch it and put it out there and not be so scared to. But anyway, we'll get into that a little bit later. Let's get into property. Um, So you yeah, are sure. a property expert and correct me if I'm wrong, but you own your own home. Yeah, correct. I own my own home and currently buying my second one. Well, 
hopefully I would have completed on it within the next couple of weeks. Yay, congratulations. Um, do you mind if I ask, like, when did you buy your, your first home? I bought my first home, well, I completed on my first home, February 2015. So coming up to six years ago now. Wow, how old were you then? Yeah, I was 23 at the time, 23, when I completed on it. That is so young. That's really, really young, especially these days. I mean, I feel like in our parents' generation, that's what they were doing. But now, you know, we are purchasing properties and starting the adulting, quote-unquote, phase of our lives much later. Was it something that you knew you wanted to do from a really young age? Or was it something you just sort of happened to have money and thought, let me purchase property? Or was it something that was pre-planned and that really thought out? Um, I would say the seed was planted when I got my first job within the property industry. Before then, when I was at university and even when I graduated, it wasn't really at the forefront of my mind that I wanted to, you know, buy a property. What really planted the seed was being... I, I worked at an estate agent, that was my first job, was being around people who are obviously experts in property, but being around a lot of people who were young like me and had similar goals of buying a property. So when I was around all of them, I started to understand the benefits of property ownership a little bit more. I started to understand that it was actually closer and within my reach than I'd realized. And I thought to myself, hey, if I can be a bit disciplined, save up uh, over the next couple of years, I could seriously be in a position where I'm able to buy somewhere and not too far away from home. So I was lucky enough to be within that environment that facilitated that desire to buy somewhere. So that's what I would say sparked it. It was never at the forefront. I'd always had a small interest in it because my dad owned a few properties and, you know, you watch programs like Location, Location, Location or Grand Designs or Homes Under the Hammer. So you're aware of the benefits of property ownership, but it really went into full on overdrive when I was in that environment. And I thought to myself, hey, I want to go on this journey and buy somewhere now. That's really interesting that you said your dad was into property as well. So I guess this is me getting into your business, your dad's business. But was it, did you guys have conversations about property and the importance of property ownership? Was it something that he ever imposed on you or was it more so just you wanting to go into it? From honest, not, not massively, not massively. I think he sort of started quite late himself, uh, late in the sense of um, obviously because first generation migrants, when they came to this country, uh, you, you've you've generally got to start all over again, haven't you? You've got to do all your. Uh, he's, he's a doctor. My mum's um, works in works in law, and you know you've got to do all your qualifications again. So it takes a while to build up to a stage where you're able to buy you know buy properties, and that took them quite a while to do that. So it wasn't necessarily something that they were instilling in us, saying you know from a very young age, so you have to buy this, you have to do this. I would say I had an interest in it. And, you know, I'd seen that he owned a few properties, but I never really fully understood the, the benefits of ownership until I was surrounded by other people who were doing it at the same time as well. So you could almost view it in such a way where my dad was probably the first stage, i.e. awareness, and then actual action. Uh, that stage happened when I started working within the industry. And yeah, something I didn't necessarily want any help with. I managed to save up the deposit to buy my first place totally from my own earnings and from my own savings. And that was something I was dead set on doing to prove to myself. And to others, more importantly, that you hear about the prices being out of reach, you hear about it being really difficult to buy. And if you look at it as one big goal, it can seem very daunting and unachievable. But if you look at it in incremental, small daily steps over a long period of time, and you can apply that thesis and that ethos to a number of different things. But if you look at it in that way, it becomes a lot more achievable. Little steps each day can bring you closer towards your goal than you think. And that's how I viewed it. And that's how I eventually got to got to a position where I was able to buy my first place. Two things stuck out to me about what you've just said. Um, 
um, the fact that you were adamant that you wanted to do this on your own. You didn't want a helping hand from your parents. And the fact that you say with first generation migrants, you know, it's difficult because you have to start from the beginning, whether that's getting your, even if you owned homes back home, coming back here, having to start refresh with us, buying property again, getting your degrees again, getting your qualifications again, and getting on the career ladder again. So I was just doing a bit of research and I came across the statistics of home ownership according to the different ethnic groups in the UK, which I found really interesting. So overall, about 63% of households in England are, are owned. And this was around 2018. But out of those 63%, 68 of wise British households owns their homes compared to 74% of Indian households who have the largest group who own their homes. But then in comparison, about 20% of Black Africans owned their homes with 17% of Arab ethnic groups owning their homes, which is a massive, massive difference. So if you compare 20% of the Black African households to 74% of the Indian households that are owned, the difference is so crazy to me. What are some things do you feel like contribute to that difference in home ownership within the different ethnic groups? Yeah, those statistics don't read pretty at all. And I actually did a video on this and, you know, it was featured in Lad Bible and it was quite a divisive topic because like with a lot of headlines, people only ever read the headline and don't actually get into the full on body of the text. But yeah, what I try to say in an article and what I will say to you to that question is there's a number of different things that go into it that are partly out of anyone's control, but also partly um, within people's control as well. And the first thing to say is that I do think the fact that specifically Black migration and Black African migration to this country happened a lot later than other ethnic groups will account for some of those lower home ownership rates within the Black African community. So it really started to go into overdrive migration to this country from the Black African community in the sort of late 70s, mid 80s, early 90s. That's when the majority of uh, migration occurred compared to other ethnic groups like Caribbean or Indian, which happened much, much sooner. So that partly explained the slightly lower home ownership rates. However, I do think there are things which are slightly more unjust and could have been different if there was a different mindset and society operated in a slightly different way. Number one being our own culture. I do think we are less likely, and I've heard this from a number of different people, to speak about finances or to speak about general um, financial well-being or financial literacy as a community. It's quite a almost taboo topic to talk about within our culture. And I do think that has uh, indirectly had an impact on our desire or our understanding of the benefits of home ownership. So that's something you can't necessarily measure, but I do think it has definitely contributed. And then lastly, I do think there is an element of racial prejudice as well. If you look at the representation of Black Africans or Black as a whole in the senior positions or in the higher paying jobs in this country, there is a disproportionate amount of other ethnic groups and uh, domestic ethnic groups who are represented at a higher rate. And once your income as a collective and as a community is lower, that has several knock-on effects. One of them being you're likely to have high home ownership rates within the community. And on top of that, because we are culturally more likely to give back to our people back back home or we have to support more of our family because we are within that lower rung of earning potential and earning power that compounds the issue and 
makes it less likely for us to reach home ownership levels. So you can start to see that right at the top of the problem, you've got later migration, maybe slightly further on down that rung, you've then got racial prejudice. And because of those two things, they compound to create a number of different negative obstacles, which make it difficult for us to reach the home ownership rates that we're trying to get to. Now, the silver lining to all of this is I do think as generations start to become more educated and as we start to have a longer history in this country, and things like the internet and things like uh, affirmative action start to gather pace, home ownership rates will increase. And I'm really interested to see the census of 2021 because the last census that gave those statistics was one in 2011. So I'm interested to see if there's been any progress over the last 10 years. I'm not expecting any crazy amounts, but I'll be very interested to see what the progress has been. And I do think over time it will get better, but there's still a lot of work to do to increase those home ownership rates to a level that I think is going to be something to be proud of. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what I found interesting was that in terms of the highest percentage that belonged to Indian households, which had 74% in comparison to 68% of white British households, which came in second, what do you think there is mm. to be said about perhaps the attitudes of Indian households and the culture that they have in the fact that they have the largest percentage group who own their homes? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you start to wonder, hey, they weren't here before um, the Caucasian uh, community. So why have they got such a high home ownership rate and so much higher than almost well, over 10% higher than their white counterpart? Um, honest answer is I don't know. I would predict and I'm guessing that it's definitely part cultural. Again, I'm not sort of within the Indian community 24 seven, but my experiences with the people that I have been friends with or I have spoken to is such that they are a lot more cohesive. They stick together more. They buy from each other more. They, you know, collaborate with each other more than other cultural groups do. Uh, people often sort of collect black people within this one group. And the diversity within black people in this country is huge. You know, the diaspora isn't just Nigeria and Jamaica. It's a lot of different countries. And with a lot of different countries comes a lot of different cultures. So cohesion is almost less likely to take place than it is within a country who has less diversity or more similarities with each other. So I do think cultural aspects play a part in why they've been able to have such a high home ownership rate not just because of the fact they migrated to this country earlier than a lot of other ethnic groups did, but I do think uh, culturally they are. And you could argue maybe they've got more of a propensity to be more entrepreneurial in this country, hence why their home ownership rates are higher. You could also argue that educational rates of their home countries are high. You know, they're more likely to focus on education and school compared to some ethnic groups within the black diaspora as well. So there's a number of different things. I don't think it's one particular reason, but it's a number of different things collectively which have produced that statistic of, you know, 74% home ownership rates amongst Indian community. Yeah, I agree with you. Um, definitely culture seems to play a part. And I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who is Asian and forgive me, I don't remember what particular group, um, whether she's Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi. Um, and I remember just her saying about how within their community, what they do is there there is a lot of collaboration, which you also mentioned. For instance, even after graduation, graduating, you don't move out, you stay at home. After marriage, you, you stay at home, you save with your partner. And once you're able to have complete savings to buy a home, that's when you branch out and you, you then buy your own property. 
or collaborating, buying property with your parents versus you just buying the property by yourself. And of course, that that really makes a huge difference. And I feel like within other communities, it's a bit more individualistic. There isn't that collaboration. There isn't that sense of community, that sense of backing and support, which I think we need a bit more of because clearly with house prices rising and rising annually, it's getting much more difficult, particularly, you know, in London. So do you feel like that's something that we, we need to maybe look into a little bit more in terms of like collaborating more within our families, maybe even collaborating with friends, if that was possible, collaborating with siblings and buying property together? Or do you feel like that's maybe something we're not ready for or are willing to do? No. Um, yeah, I like how you ended that question. The willingness of our community to do that I definitely think it's increased I think it's increased um I do think that um it's something we can do more of and I do think more of it is happening and you can just you can just point to the internet there are lots of um leaders up-and-coming leaders as well within our community and within a diaspora that are doing some amazing work to increase financial literacy and almost make home ownership or investing cool like a lot I've noticed as well recently a lot of maybe it's been fast forwarded because of us all being at home at the moment but I've noticed a lot more people have taken an interest to uh, stocks and shares or, or property or just generally uh, ha- hoping their money can do more for them as opposed to just waiting for a nine to five job to pay them their monthly paycheck. There, there seems to be an increased appetite to uh, consume more knowledge surrounding that. So I think there's a lot of good work being done by influencers within that space who are from the black diaspora. And I do think it's playing, it's paying dividends. So I do think our generation will be the first to make a, a good leap towards increasing those statistics and being more cohesive and more collaborative as a society. One thing I would like to see change, however, that I've noticed within the black community specifically is that we tend to have this almost toxic materialistic attitude when it comes to living life. And that's a generalistic statement. I don't mean that applies to everybody, but I've noticed that it's got to be the latest trainers. It's got to be the nicest car. It's got to be, um, you know, we just, there's, there's a lot of consumerism that, is a waste of money within our society that I think has had a negative impact and made it less likely for us to hit our financial co- uh, goals and our financial targets sooner. Um, and I know that's a generalistic statement, but I've noticed it. It's higher within the black community than it is within other communities as well. Like we care more about how we appear almost to our to our peers than other communities do. Sounds, it might be a slightly controversial statement to make, but I definitely think there's an element of truth to that that has been that's done more long-term harm than uh, than long-term good I oh <laughs> I partly agree I partly agree um and I feel like we have maybe inherited that from our parents you know the attitude of making sure that you look good to outsiders making sure that you look the part versus really being the part um, and that's something that we definitely have to look to change. And we are we are changing that as a lot more of us are trying to get into the investing, get into the buying property, getting into making sure that our money is working for us um, starting, you know, having nine to fives and having side hustles. I think we are trying to change that a little bit. And I think over time, we may see that with the next generations. Um but actually, I'm not sure because I feel like the the generation is it Gen. I feel like Gen Z is much more trapped. Yeah. 
particularly with social media, I feel like they're much more trapped in the in the image gang and making sure that they look good. <laughs> you know, like yeah. have wearing designer brands, wearing Gucci at the age of nineteen. Like, <laughs> you do you know what I mean? So it's just it's difficult. Well, I also think to be at- the good thing about that generation. Sorry, Kaya. Um, I think, yeah, we do have to actively get out of that mindset and that mind frame and make sure that we are focusing on what's important in the long run and not satisfying having that immediate gratification from things that don't matter, things that fade away, materialistic things and looking to invest for the long term, you know? 100%, 100%. I was just going to say the good thing for that generation is I think they're slightly more entrepreneurial than any other generation that there's there's been you know the ability to make money online or their desire to have side hustles or extra income is a, is a good thing for that generation I think yeah I think they're definitely much more on it in terms of like spotting areas where they can they they can make money it does work for them yeah. and they know what's popping they know what works and they know what their generation wants so they're really able to zone into that and and make the most of it so um, I was just kind of reading up on the different ways that people can get into property. And one of the ways that I came across that seems to be a little bit popular, but also a little bit controversial was shared ownership. Now, I wanted to hear what you think about this, because people are very, they seem to be very divided on their opinion in it. Some absolutely love it. They think it's great. It's a good way to get onto the property ladder. But for some people, they're like, it's a downright scam. Don't do it. Now, where do you stand on that? Um, I, I, I sort of have the same answer to most of these questions surrounding government schemes. And when it comes to shared ownership specifically, it's the same answer. It's neither inherently bad, nor is it inherently good. I don't think any government scheme comes without its deserved criticisms. All of them could have been executed better. When it comes specifically to shared ownership, I think its ethos is fantastic. It gives the ability to someone who would not have been able to save up enough of a deposit to buy somewhere or didn't have the correct or sufficient income to buy somewhere, the ability to get on the property ladder and call a property home much sooner than they would have been able to do without government help. And if that particular person or that entity or that family needed the security of a roof over their head, they needed the security of not having to worry if a landlord's going to sell their property and they just needed the security of a permanent location, then it's fantastic for them, right? Like shared ownership essentially means you are able to buy a share in a property and pay rent on the share that you don't own at a subsidized level. And most shared ownership arrangements end up in most cities across, sorry, in London specifically, end up generally being cheaper on a monthly payment basis than you'd pay for that equivalent property in rent if that makes sense. So from a financial monthly month to month standpoint, it also makes sense as well. Now, there's a lot of benefits. You can put down a lower deposit, you can have a lower income and get on the property ladder. But at the same time, obviously it comes with its negatives as well. And I think there was a documentary that recently came out, which focused heavily and criticized quite heavily and brought to light a lot of the negative aspects of shared ownership too. So yes, um, you know, when it comes to staircasing or yes, when it comes to managing agents, and yes, when it comes to the you know the quality of the build or lots of other different things, there are some place there are some things you can criticize it for, but that doesn't mean it's universally bad for everybody. For the right person, for the right family, in the right situation at the right time, it can be a lifesaver. So my yes. answer, my answer is it's I think it's great. If you ask hundred people, fifty percent will say it's a terrible idea, fifty percent will say it's brilliant. 
Yeah. And I guess it's one of those things. It just depends on who the individual is, what their particular situation is, and really their their plans for the long term, whether they plan to stay a case and own an increasing part of the shares for the property or whether they just plan to continue with the original agreement of what they signed. So something I came across um, when I was just doing some research was what you have to be aware of as well is obviously if in a case where you let's say for instance you lost your job and you were no longer able to pay the full amount whether that's the rent part of your property the housing provider can take action to repossess the property for rent arrears and counter court and there was one particular case where after one particular woman was failing to pay her rent and she was falling behind she was evicted from her part-owned property and a court ruled that she had no rights to the £30,000 she had already paid for her share, which is absolutely scary. Um, And I can imagine for a lot of people, that's something that they would be very weary of and may also put them off knowing that, of course, I don't share this entire home. So if anything was to happen, it can be taken away from me in an instance. Yeah, um... I guess you've also got to look at a situation if you own a if you own a property in that, but there was a mortgage on it as well. Um, if you stop paying your mortgage for six months, then it's going to get re- your house is going to get repossessed as well, and it will probably be sold at a lower amount than what you would ideally want to put, get for it on the open market. So that also would eat away at your equity in that property as well. So look, neither of them are great situations, and that does sound scary, but. You shouldn't be going into home ownership of any sort unless you are sure that you are able to make the repayments on it. You know, whether it's shared ownership, whether it's help to buy, whether it's right to buy, whether it's whether you're buying without any government help, you should be aware of the risks and the responsibilities that you have uh, for that particular property. So, yeah, like it sounds scary, but you've always got to look at what's the better alternative. Are you Because you're too scared of shared ownership, you're just going to stay renting and putting money into landlord's pockets or do you want to, you know, have the confidence in yourself to make those repayments and get somewhere. So it just depends on what the lesser of two evils is. I do think you've always got to look at things in context. Yes, it's scary, but is it still a better decision to do that than it is to rent somewhere? Yeah. Hey, if you are loving this episode so far, make sure you subscribe for automatic updates whenever there's a new episode. Recommend the podcast to your best friend. And of course, follow me on Instagram. Details will be in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Which brings me on to my next question then. Is it by force? Is um, property (laughs) ownership by force? (laughs) Because, I mean, you know, it is a way and it's been a way for centuries to build wealth and for to continue on generational wealth. But is it by force? Um, And is renting such a negative thing, particularly for, for instance, somebody who isn't really sure what they want, whether they, they could be like, you know what? I don't really want to own a home in London, whether this in 10 years time and I want to live in... Leicester when I have my kids or I want to raise my kids somewhere somewhere different you know is renting such a bad thing you know what renting is not a bad thing at all to sort of answer your question you know is it by force I think I'm slightly biased but if you look at it from an investment perspective I think that property should make up part of your investment strategy over time whoever you are um, from a long-term perspective because it's just a very very proven way Again, I'm specifically talking about within the UK, but it also probably applies in many other countries across the world. But it's been proven, as you quite rightly said, over not just decades, but centuries to provide 
not just wealth to yourself, but generational wealth for your offspring as well. Um, you can't argue with that data. And to bet against that trend continuing in the long term, you'd be a brave person. So it's a proven way to build and sustain wealth for generations. So I think it should definitely make up part of your investment strategy. Now, that being said, I know a lot of people who own quite a few properties, but they rent the home that they live in. And that's because from a lifestyle perspective, it just makes more sense for them to have the flexibility of renting somewhere, but also because they just view ownership and property ownership only as an investment vehicle. So for some people, it's purely as, as an investment. So if you look at it like that, I think it's uh, it's a better way to answer that question is property ownership by force. Because a lot of people think about property ownership and feel that they have to live in it. You don't. You can buy somewhere to rent it out as your first buy to let. There's mortgage products and banks out there who will give you a mortgage as a first-time buyer to rent out a property. Yes, it comes with more restrictions and there's more hoops to jump through, but if you view it specifically as an investment vehicle and an investment, I think it should make up part of everybody's investment strategy. Whether it's 10% of your portfolio or 95% of your portfolio, it should play a part because it's just a proven way to build and sustain well. Right, I agree with that. I and I don't think it's for everybody. Like, I genuinely don't think it's for everybody. So definitely maybe looking at it as a way of, of investing and a way to to build that, that generational wealth. They're not necessarily buying it for yourself, but buying it for those particular reasons. And I think that's where maybe we can also discuss the possibility of coming together with the people in your community to buy property for that particular reason, for investment, for renting it out and making hopefully a return at, at some point. So something I also wanted to talk about was the alternatives to actually purchasing property via investing in the stock market and investing in real estate investment trust. So what's your opinion on that? And is it something that you do or recommend for other people who don't necessarily want to own a physical property, but still want to somehow invest in some way? Yes, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a brilliant way to have some exposure to property without necessarily having to deal with the labor intensive side of it, whether it might be managing a property or dealing with tenants or refurbishing a property or going through all the paperwork to get a mortgage on that property. I think doing it through the stock market is a great way to have exposure to that. On top of that, it also gives you the ability to have an easy way in to have exposure to the property market, not just on a residential basis, but also on a commercial basis as well. So yeah, for anyone who doesn't understand what a REIT is or a real estate investment trust is, it essentially gives you the ability to invest in a company that has exposure to property on a commercial or residential or mixed use basis. So REITs essentially get their money from ownership and management of real estate in whichever country, continent, or whichever country or continent they operate in. So if you actually look at REITs at the moment, some of them have done worse than others. And the ones that have probably had more challenges within the last year to two have been the ones that have had exposure to the high street, uh, because obviously the high street revenues have dropped over the last year or two because of COVID. But a lot of REITs have had higher exposure and their portfolio is made more up of warehouses and storage, which has actually done quite well. So a good play at the moment, and what has proven to be quite recession-proof and COVID-proof, if you want to call it that, has been investing in REITs, which have um, got exposure to those to that side of real estate. But that's not to say other REITs who've got exposure to the high street or residential have done badly. Uh, I'm sure they will do better over time and they start to come back and we learn how to manage and live with this in a more sustainable and more intelligent way. But I think REITs are a great option. 
Um, and there's a number of different other strategies that you can invest in property, which also take away the labor intensive side of, it, uh, side of it as well, whether that might be crowdfunding, where you can essentially put some money into a project alongside other investors, you know, Joe Blogs, and then benefit from the returns on investment as and when that project is finished. So there's a number of different pa more passive ways you can get involved as opposed to just your buy to let, buy refurbish, refinance, rent to rent, HMO and, and property management. The good thing, again, with REITs is that, I mean, you don't have to think about a £40,000 deposit for your mortgage. It can literally right. just be putting £100 a month or even £50 a month, whatever you can afford, and slowly and surely invest into the property market without having to, like you said, do all the work. Let someone else do the work for you and you just kind of sit down and hopefully reap the benefits of that. But yeah, do you have a particular area I guess within property that you you would prefer would it, would it be kind of um residential private property um is it more you know commercial what's your preference so for me my strategy is has been very much acquisition of properties as an ownership of properties and building up my portfolio slowly but surely over the long term. I believe strongly in the fact that you will gain more wealth in the long term through buying and owning properties in great areas that have got fantastic fundamentals over a long period of time, as opposed to the monthly cash flow that you will get from other strategies in areas which haven't necessarily got as good um, capital growth prospects so my strategy is slow but over time in the long term I think it's the correct one for me personally that's not to say other higher cash flow strategies are bad it just means that this is one that suits my lifestyle because I'm there's a lot of other things I do and I'm passionate about and I enjoy um, whether that might be making content or you know my goals and desires of you know doing more media and tv work I'm I, that's my sort of day-to-day basis and my day-to-day -day priorities whereas other people want to be more hands-on and they want to live and breathe it every single day which means it might make more sense for them to rent to rent or a high cash flow but more labor intensive strategy whereas for me I'm more dead set on building up that legacy over time so it might take me to save up my pots over a longer period of time but I know in the long term it will pay its dividends right right my last question in terms of property would be yeah, sure. what are sort of your your predictions for 2020 one and beyond in terms of the property market and where we're going to go with that because there's been I think almost an eight percent increase in London um, in terms of the annual increase for for the prices and I'm guessing around six percent for the UK in general what's your predictions what we can expect yeah, sure. Depending on what measure you look at, house prices, like you quite rightly said, across the country rose by anywhere from 6 to 8%. I think London was slightly lower. The big key driver in house prices has also been consumer behaviour. People have generally been sat at home and thought to themselves, I don't need to live here anymore. Why am I forcing myself into this small one-bedroom flat in Zone 2 when I can get spend the same amount of money and get an extra bedroom and some outside space in Zone 4 and Zone 5, and I can work from home? So... So my prediction as a whole to wrap this all up is that I think there will be house price growth. I don't think it will be as high as it was last year. Maybe towards the tail end of this year, it will slightly slow down. But as a first time buyer or someone thinking of buying somewhere, never try and time the market. There's a great saying in the stock market that I also think applies to property as well. Time in the market is a much better way to approach it than trying to time the market, if that makes sense. Spending time in the market. So look at it from a long-term perspective. If you buy something today in a great area, great fundamentals, the likelihood of you making money and you getting benefits in five to 10 years is very high. It's high likelihood than you losing money. Yeah. Um, I saw this style, which I was like, wow. 
the ONS, the Office of National Statistics, said that the average right. price of a home in London was up by 9.7% to a record of £514,000 last year for the average home price up in London, which is absolutely insane. Now, considering, you know, the the average deposit price is about 10 to 15%, you're now looking at about 50k deposit. And I, I don't know if this trend continues and doesn't decrease, I don't know how many of us are going to be able to, to afford that and how long it will take us to get there. Yeah, I think um, you're absolutely right. It's a great point you make. I don't know what the exact numbers are. Um, London at the moment bounces between you know, four, 480 and 500, like you quite rightly said. And yeah, you know, the average size deposit is probably higher than 10% in London. And you start to think how can people on the salaries they're on save up that amount and also afford the mortgage, you know? So yeah, you start to think, how how is that sustainable? Now, the only way it'll be sustainable is if two things happen. Either banks essentially allow their income requirements to be a sli- slightly more lax, which is unlikely, or people get paid more, you know? And those two things are unlikely to happen. Uh, so I think there will be a continued trend to move out. The only way that those uh, house prices in, in London will be sustained will be from foreign investment and generational wealth passing down their, their wealth to future generations. Because you have to remember the bank of mum and dad is one of the biggest lenders in this country. And more and more so parents are helping out their children to get onto the property ladder. I think it was last year, about £6 billion in funding came from the bank of mum and dad to help children onto the property ladder, which made them a bigger lender than Clydesdale Bank and not too far off of some of the big guys like Halifax, Lloyds, Barclays, and other big lenders as well. So, you know, that also plays a big part. So there are, there are going to be things which are going to sustain it, but there will be a growing, a slightly growing trend of people moving further and further and further out in order to get more value for money. Yeah, definitely. Um, you brought up an interesting question about the bank of mum and dad, because, yeah. you know, like you said, a lot of us are dependent on our parents to support us and give us that helping hand. Um, and I remember specifically talking to, um, at an old job, talking to a colleague who was looking to buy property with her fiance or boyfriend and her saying, <laughs> she says something like, when her boyfriend's grandma passes away, they will be inheriting some money and they're hoping that when she does pass away, they will be using that money to, <laughs> to buy their property or to add on to, to their savings or to buy property. And I was just, I mean, it was funny in a, in a dark way, but I was like, wow. <laughs> and that's, that's, that's the reality that we're living in. But um, okay, so let, <laughs> let's move forward a little bit. You also mentioned that um, some of your passions are presenting media and looking to go into TV a bit more. Now, you host your talk show, The Top Chat Show. Tell me a bit more about that, which I absolutely love, by the way. I love the format that it's in. It's fun. It's laid back. And you just get to know your favorite celebrities, influencers a little bit more. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah. So, um. What was Top Chat born out of? Top Chat was born out of, first and foremost, a desire just to sort of um, do more of what I like. You know, I was in a job, corporate job, that was sucking the life out of me. And I just 
got to a stage where I was like, I, I need to enjoy myself. You know, this life isn't just to be a corporate slave. So I really, it was almost like a turning point when I had that realization. I just wanted to do more, more of my passions. So I, yeah, just still ask myself, what do I enjoy doing? What, what have people told me that I'm good at? Um, you know, everyone always said, oh, you've got a good voice. Like you, um, you've got a good personality. You seem to get on with people quite well. You should do like some sort of talk show. So I was like, say no more. So I basically just went home that night. I was like, okay, what's a cool idea for a talk show? Asked a couple of friends and a friend gave me the idea of top chat. So I was like, oh, let me use that. And then from then I just said to myself, I'm not going to think about it too much. I'm just going to go out, reach out to people and see if I can do some interviews. I thought that was the best way to do it. So that's how it was born basically. And then more recently within the last six months to a year, I noticed that the interviews that were getting a better feedback were the quick fire rapid, uh, rapid ones that I did it on the street. So I've just stuck with that format where it's five minutes and I basically interview any guest who's happy enough to come on the show or nice enough to come on the show and ask them a series like a series of 25 to 30 quick fire questions that are designed to get the audience to get to know them, um, show their personality, and yeah, hopefully be inspired by by their life story. So that's um that's what it is. You know, look, it's it's not at a stage where I want it to be. You know, I'd love it to have a bigger audience and I'd love it to be seen by more people. And you know, I'm sure there's more stuff that I can improve on as well. So, but it's um it's a process and I enjoy doing it. That's the most important thing. And that comes across, like it generally comes across in how you you interview people, how you talk to people. Now, as a content creator, what are some top tips for anybody that's thinking, okay, 2021, I want to make the most of it. I want to create more content. I want to put myself out there or build a platform, whatever it is they're looking to do. What are some top tips that you would give them? Good question. I would say I'm not fully qualified to answer this because I feel like there's so much more I can learn. However, from the little success that I've had and the good feedback I've had so far, I think what has stuck out to me is that you have to talk about a topic that you are passionate about. That doesn't mean you have to have one singular passion. Like we're all passionate about lots of different things, right? But whatever you make content about, you've got to have a passion for it. It's got to excite you. It's got to interest you. It's got to give you some form of fulfillment or joy talking about it or making content about it. That's the number one thing. Because if you don't love it, if you don't like it at the very least, that will come across on camera. It will either come across as disingenuous or you will just quit and you'll stop doing it because you don't, you don't really love it. One, you've got to have a passion for it. It's got to excite you. It's got to interest you. It's got to do something within you first and foremost from a content creation perspective. The second thing I'd say about um, creating content in 2021, a good tip is I hate to be cliche with it. And you're probably going to guess what I'm going to say is consistency. It's just consistency. Yeah. Consistency seems to be, and for good reason, it's really um, adored within society. And I think quite rightly so, because if people can expect a video every single week from you, then that gives them good reason to follow. But it also gives them good reason to know that you are dedicated to what you're doing as well. You know, if you go on anyone's page, if the last post about a con some piece of content they were making was two years ago, you're unlikely to follow them. However, if they've had five months, six months, seven months of making that content around that subject matter, you know what you're going to expect from that page. So consistency about a particular niche is really important if you want to build a following and get your content seen by more people. Um, the last thing I would say that I think has worked quite well for me is you have to be smart with your content. You have to understand the lay of the land on whatever social platform you're putting it out on. Instagram is different to Twitter. Twitter is different to LinkedIn. LinkedIn is different to TikTok. TikTok is different to Snapchat. Whatever platform you are putting your content out of on, you have to understand the nuances and 
you know, the ins and outs of that platform and be clever with it. You can have some fantastic content, but if you put it out in the wrong format or in the wrong way, it's just not going to get seen by people. Algorithms, unfortunately, exist. I think if your content is fantastic, A1, it doesn't really matter what the algorithm is because it's going to get spread anyway. But for most people, when they first start out, it's never going to be to the level at what you want your content to eventually be at. So it's important to be clever with it. Right now on Instagram, reels work really well. So if you know that, do more of it. If your content's great, it's not going to get seen by people unless you're clever with it. So those those are things I think I'm going to try and do more of this year. And all of what I've said, I don't think that I do enough of, but I know it's something I'm striving towards. But you've got to love your content, number one. You've got to be consistent with it. And you also lastly have to understand the nuances of each platform that you put your content out on. I will definitely be adopting some of that advice myself. I know, you know, like you said, consistency is key. And that's something that I I am working on. Um, But it's hard. I I don't think people realize how hard it is to try and create content and be consistent. It means if you're really going to be on top of your game, if you're going to reach more people, if you're going to grow quickly, you have to really be posting every day in reality. But I mean, depending on the kind of content you you create, but um, you have to be posting every single day. I, well, I made a new friend recently and something I learned from him was you have to be consistent and every single day like he does not miss he will post a video every single day and and this could be a two two to three minute video but it takes so long to create those videos so I'm like your work rate is on point but I can see that it clearly works for him because his platforms are growing in terms of audience so yeah it, it does work but back to you we are gonna end nice. this little talk with a fire round a question. So I'm, I'm going to do a topsy on you. Is that okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's fine by me. Let's go for it. Okay. What is your number one pet peeve? Number one pet peeve is probably people who are closed-minded. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. Biggest turn-off. Closed-minded Biggest turn-off, nasty people. People who are just horrible to others who can't do anything for them. Okay. So like rude, mean... Yeah, rude and mean people. I like I like people with a good spirit and a good heart. And when you're on the other end of the spectrum of that, it's a massive turnoff for me. I agree. I agree. I can't stand unnecessarily rude people. Like, you're just bad vibes for no reason. Like, live life, yeah, man. That's, that's what I'm going to say. I'm bad vibes. That's my biggest turnoff, bad vibes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. If you weren't a property expert and a presenter, what else would you be? I would be an R&B singer. Nice. If I could go back in like 10, 15 years time, I would have taken more singing lessons and I would have, you know, auditioned for X Factor. You would have been like the next Usher. Yep. I can see that for you. I can see that for you. Okay. <laughs> what <laughs> what advice would you give to your 16-year-old self? Mm, be patient. Be patient. Basically, don't feel like you have to rush into life. Take time understand what you're really passionate about, understand what excites you, go out there and taste and experiment everything that has any level of interest to you and take time to really figure out what you want to do. Don't compare yourself to anybody else. Don't rush, take time, focus on you, experiment and it will all work out in the end. I love that. I think that is the perfect note to end it on. Okay, so what can we expect from you in 2021? But yeah, as far as what you can expect from me in 2021, uh, more content, more content. I want to really make as much content as I possibly can this year. 
I want to provide as much value as I possibly can this year. So you can you can expect more of that from me. And hopefully, fingers crossed, more um, more collaborations with brands are something I'm really keen on doing. And yeah, more creativity. I want to I want to do things that I haven't done before and experiment and try new things out. So that's what you can expect from me this year. If you follow me, I can promise that you'll get some level of value, some level of entertainment, banter, whatever it is. Hopefully I can provide that um, if you if you follow and interact with me. So, yeah, that's my plan for 2021. I love that. Something that you've just said was providing value and that that speaks to me and then that's a major key well for me anyway so I I definitely agree with that one so not just creating content but creating valuable content and creating whatever content it is that will speak to people and reach people on more than just the swipe and click and entertainment but Yeah. yeah make sure to check out the top chat chat show it's really fun I absolutely love it um, and you've had some amazing guests, including Maya Jama. Um, you've had Koi. Who else? Uh, yeah, Tolly T's been on it. Tolly T. Yeah, yeah. So I absolutely love it. Make sure you check it out. And where can we find you? Where can we stalk you? Um, I am at Topsy Taiwo on all socials. That's at T-O-P-S-Y-T-A-I-W-O. Any last words? Thank you for having me on. And you've been a great host. And yeah, I want to see you do some big things this year as well. Sometimes I feel like when you get encouragement and you get words and you get compliments from other people, it can help you you do more and really put you on your journey. And I've got to say, you've been a great host. I love the brand as well. Like Dreams of Money is a great, great brand as well. And you've done some cool, great things as well. So thank you for having me on and I'm wishing you all the best as well. Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, that is it for this episode. As always, you can find me on Instagram. Socials will be in the description box as well as Topsy's social media. It will be in the description box. And until next time.